Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com earnings right now. NetSuite.com earnings. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Bloomberg Business of Sports show, where we explore the big money issues in the world of sports. I'm Scarlett Fu. And I'm Mike Lynch. And today we are talking about a blockbuster announcement in the world of golf. The USGA and not-for-profit health organization ProMedica announcing a long-term partnership that includes presenting partner rights for the U.S. Women's Open, which means more eyeballs on the sport and bigger checks for the athletes involved. So for more on this exciting announcement, we're pleased to welcome the CEO of the U.S. Golf Association, Mike Wan, to walk us through the implications. Mike, welcome to the show. And the implication, really, when I looked at this news, was that the U.S. Women's Open becomes one of the highest-paying championships in all of women's sports. The purse gets exponentially bigger, doesn't it? Yeah, thanks, Scarlett. Thanks, Mike. It's... um. Uh, it's it's all about elevation. You know, this is we we talk in here about three P's a lot. You know, the purpose of our championships, the places we play them, and the purses that we pay out. Because those three things, you know, change the dreams of little girls all over the world. I mean, it, a lot of little girls standing on a putting green five o'clock tonight somewhere saying, "This one's for the U.S. Women's Open," and we want that dream to get bigger and broader. So, partnering with ProMedica gave us bigger purpose in terms of the impact we can make in the markets we're in, not just with the athletes, but for people potentially less fortunate that, that need help, and our championships can make a difference there. We're, we're going to some of the biggest names in the world, which matters in these dreams. Pebble Beach, Oakmont, Marion, mm. Pinehurst, Riviera. And, uh, and yeah, purses. Last year we played for $5.5 million, which was huge in women's golf. This year we'll play for 10 on our way to 11 and on our way to 12. So when you start talking about what $12 million feels like in the, in the space of golf, it's, um, it's, you know, this, this is real, and it makes – real differences. And as I said to a lot of tour players that I'm friends with, as much as this means for you, and I know it means a lot for you, for those of you trying to make it to this championship, it means a lot more for your daughters and your daughter's daughters, because this is about creating a, uh, a respect, a belief, um, and a dream that um, that's, that's only going to get bigger because of this announcement. Mike, I'm curious, how did you convince ProMedica to almost double a purse from $5.5 million to $10 million this year and 11 and $12 million in the ensuing years? I got to know ProMedica when I was the LPGA commissioner, which is what I did before coming to the USGA. And 
when I uh, last conversation I had with Prometica when I was at the LPGA is they said, Mike, we're we're a huge regional brand on the on the cusp of really going national. And so what I'd really like is a national championship on, on network TV that rotates to, to, to big markets all over the U.S. And at the time, I tried to sell them on a championship we had in Palm Springs, but but it stayed in Palm Springs. And like, yeah, no. If you find, you know, later, if you find something. So then I came into the USGA and realized that this this opportunity to present a, by the way, in 127 years of history at the USGA, we've never had a corporate name connected to any of our championships. So this was a big, this was a big lift and, a, you know, an anxious moment. But when we started talking about who would be the right corporate partner. My mind quickly went to Prometica for three reasons. They're, they're not-for-profit, mission-based, just like us. So they're about making a difference more than they're about, you know, how many things did we sell this quarter? They um, they're, uh, they already understood the women's game. They were big sponsors of the Solheim Cup. They, um, they they had sponsored an LPGA event once before. And his voice went off in my head, which is going national, rotating network TV, and that's the U.S. Women's Open. So mm. um, they were the first and only company I reached out to. I mean, when I got here, USGA was talking to other corporate options, but they're the only, they were the first and last call I made on this topic. And a couple of months later, we got our deal done. So the context and the backdrop here is that viewership for the U.S. Women's Open has been rising. Um, on NBC Sports and Golf Channel last year, it rose 62% uh, to reach the highest audience since 2016. So that's really notable. From where you sit, what's responsible for driving that viewership? Well, a couple things. I mean, uh, the women's golf has been rising for 12 years. I, mean, I can speak to that pretty comfortably from my previous world. Um, it's just, you know, it's becoming more and more interesting. The other thing that makes, you know, we talk a lot in the States about viewership and we, we do what a lot of Americans do, myself included. We talk about NBC or Golf Channel. What's really interesting about the U.S. Women's Open is it'll be televised in 170 countries because young girls from all over the world are starting to have this dream of, I mean, there, there's countries that pay for our rights and air this that 25 years ago women didn't play golf in that country. So it's really an awakening for the game all around the world. And, you know, the competition at this, at this level is so, is so deep. I mean, it used to be, went back 25 years ago on the LPGA, there was 30, 40 women that could win that week, and now anybody in the field could win. The other thing, you know, uh, Scarlett, that really makes the U.S. Women's Open stand out and certainly did last year is you start talking about playing these things on the real cathedrals of the game. When, we, when, we, when you hear that the women were going to play a U.S. Women's Open at, uh, at Olympic, you know, mm. when people think about Olympics, they think about all the great champions that have been there and all the great championships on TV, but they probably can't think of one that included women on that course. So that's why I say, you know, us saying that we're going to Oakmont and Marion and Pinehurst and Riviera and Inverness, these are these are considered the best of the best. Yeah, iconic and courses. incredible championships tied to them, incredible histories of, do you remember when Hogan, remember when Nicholas... And now it'll be incredible to be able to say, do you remember when Corda or do you remember when Lexi Thompson mm -hmm. did something at the, at, the same, at the same cathedrals of the game? Yeah, I'm a big golfer and a big golf fan. And, it, and that, that's what caught my attention when I first read the story, that these venues that you're going to, um, I mean, I, I, Oakmont, I think of Johnny Miller. Um, you know, when I think right. of Pebble, I think of, you know, the Tiger or Phil Mickelson. And you're right about that. How do, how do we accelerate the growth and, and the development of the American women golfer right now? Well, two things. I think, you know, I think one, the, the pipeline of American golfers is, is pretty strong. Um, you know, it, it may, uh, 
I've said this many times. As Americans, we would like the top 25 in the world to have 24 of them from America. <laughs> Most sports, you know, if you talk to, uh, you know, the NBA, you know, uh, tennis, golf, you know, from a business of the game and true worldwide growth, it's really not the greatest formula. So when you say you take the top 25 in the women's game and you'd say, okay, six or seven of them are from the U.S., five or six of them are from Korea, five or six are from Japan, seven or eight of them are from Europe, that's actually a super strong game. It's, uh, you know, it's what makes great sports great, as opposed to just having players come from one country, play in one country, have a championship that you call a world championship and only have it in one country is great mm-hmm. for Americans, but doesn't really create a, you know, a global awareness, doesn't create global sponsorship, global viewership. And that's really what's kind of cool about the women's game right now. So half of, as an American, I say, gosh, I'd like to see a lot more Americans at the top of the leaderboard at a, a specific women's championship. As a golf fanatic, I know this is really good for the game because great female golfers are literally coming from all over the world. Yeah, I mean, many of the top-ranked golfers are from Asia, as you mentioned, Korea, Japan. And, of course, I'm all for global awareness. But if you are talking to young women, to girls in the U.S., What's the key to developing more local talent, more uh, domestic talent here that will help market the game in the U.S.? Yeah, it's a good question, Scarlett. I mean, one of the things that, you know, I, I just got to the USGA here in the last year, and one of the things I explained to the board of directors when I got to the USGA is, as the former commissioner of the LPJ, virtually every player who's playing on that tour came out of a country program from where she's from, except the Americans. And what I mean by that is, if you're a 12-year-old with superstar talent and Spain, at some point you're going to become a part of Team Spain, and Team Spain is going to teach you um, stretching and nutrition and coaching and how to hire and fire a caddy and how to get into a Division One school. They're really going to going to take you and help you down a path, a no nonsense path to how to make the most out of your game. Every player from every country has that. It doesn't exist in America, and you could say one of the reasons it doesn't exist is there are a lot of opportunities in America, a lot of tours to play and coaches to see. But if you're not from that from that background, you can clearly get washed away and that talent can end up in another sport. So Mm. one of the things we're working on launching here at the United States Golf Association is Team USA is a development track for young girls and boys that helps them do the same thing. I'm not sure that makes us, that's not about competitive advantage. That's about removing some competitive disadvantage that exists today that we simply don't provide that in, in America. And when I was the head of a sport or a league, I couldn't really divert money into one country, but my current title starts with the United States, so I feel pretty comfortable that the United States Golf <laughs> Association can fully invest in this pipeline to make sure that young American talent has the best potential possible to make it to the top of the podium. So so do you think it is the USGA's responsibility, or is it the LPGA's responsibility, or is it the American Junior Golf Association's responsibility to start these pipelines? It, 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 it seems like nobody wanted to be the first one to jump in. Yeah, I, I, um, I don't know. I mean, to answer your question, I don't know if somebody feels like that, but I personally, sitting here today, I feel like it's my responsibility. I feel like it's our responsibility. I feel like the United States Golf Association, first and foremost, ought to be providing these incredible stages for people to play the game at whatever stage they're in, professional, amateur, older, younger, man, man woman, and we do that. One of the responsibilities I think we need to take under our wing is – Great young talent has clear pathway to make it. And if you don't have the financial resources to make it, then we provide those financial resources for you to do that. I think that's, um, I think the good news for me is, and what I know about the game is, if we did take responsibility for that and started this, I have zero doubt that the other entities you mentioned and many more would say, how can we help? 
I love that. Someone who's going to take responsibility for it as opposed to saying that's actually someone else's domain. That's not what we cover. Um, Mike, I got to ask you in general about pay for female athletes and for female golfers, because I look at tennis and women and men are awarded equal prize money in the four Grand Slam events. There's going to be a gender pay gap in some of the smaller tournaments. But when you look at the big events, there is parity. What does the sport of tennis do right that golf can learn from? Yeah, you know, it's funny you say that, Scarlett. I mean, it's funny. I, I spent a lot of time with a lot of folks in the tennis world, too, just because our, our businesses were similar, similar global and, and all kinds of uh, similar issues. And if you ask 100 tennis fans, do men and women get paid the same? 100 out of 100 would say yes. The reality of it is they get paid the same in four events, but, you know, but virtually not in any mm-hmm. other event. But that's okay. At least I got four yes, and the fans believe that, too. The one a real advantage, quite frankly, that tennis has that uh, is harder in golf is – they play on the in the, on the same week at the same venue under the same TV contract with the same number of consumers, and it's um, it's more difficult to do that with 156 competitors from a golf course perspective. You just can't um, you can't play it on the actual same week, same place, same TV deal. So they can you can have a lot more synergies in both in terms of cost and a lot more synergies in terms of viewership, all being on one aspect. But so so, so that's the that's the actual answer to your question. The the more conceptual part of your question is, you know, how does golf get there? And I always tell people, don't stop asking because I think that's the, you know, that's the path we're on. We're, mm-hmm. I said this, uh, I said this a few weeks ago when we were really talking about women's parity, which is to get to women's parity in golf, you can't make small incremental steps. You got to make monster steps because once you make one monster step, you can make the next one. This announcement with ProMedica and the USGA is a monster step, 5 million to 10 million to 11 to 12. These are, um, these are gargantuan steps, and that's how you get to this level. So we've got we've to think about steps this size, not how can we be 4% better than we were the year before. Mike, when you, when you think about men's golf uh, over the years, who's, who's the face of, of, of the men's tour? Is it, it was Tiger Woods, Phil Mickelson, Brooks Koepka, um, Rory McIlroy. Who is the face of women's golf right now? Well, it's funny. Even as you ask the question, you know, when you talk about who's the face of, of men's golf today, the good news is there's probably five or six or seven quality answers. And, and I've said this before, you know, I have three boys. And if I ask my three boys who's the face of the NFL, I definitely will get three different answers. And, you know, they'll all be right. I mean, Aaron Rodgers, yep. Tom Brady, mm-hmm. you know, um, and I think it actually makes the sport better because if it's, you know, if, if the NBA is only LeBron and everything else just isn't LeBron, um, that's easy for the media. You know, it's easy in terms of, you know, articles you can read, but it really doesn't make the game stronger. One of the things I've always been impressed with at the NFL is they really create, you know, uh, they really create energy at all different, at all different regions and all different levels. What's interesting about the game today is if you asked a bunch of people in Europe, who's the face of women's golf, they'll give you five top Europeans. If you ask the same in Asia, they'll give you five top. If you ask Americans, they'll say the quarter sisters and Lexi Thompson and Danielle Kang. True. I mean, definitely faces of golf. But it's a little bit regional. And the same is true if you were talking about Premier League soccer around the world. Um, people have the different core group that they follow. So I think it actually makes the game stronger. I've said this many times. I get it. One Serena Williams in golf um, would be easy for everybody to just talk about that one person. And the media would follow that one person. And when she doesn't play in a golf event, we probably would think of it as a lesser event. I'm not sure that makes the game stronger. It just makes it easier for the people that don't really follow it. Mm, right, right. I, I have a question for you about uh, broadening golf's appeal to the younger generations. We know that it's popular with boomers, with Gen X, but 
it's questionable whether millennials and Gen Z has signed on, but the pandemic may have helped things because last year everyone was looking for some kind of physical activity that they could do outside that was socially distanced, and golf kind of fits the bill perfectly. Give us your observations on how the sport of golf has uh, increased its appeal during the pandemic and whether that's sustainable once we get past COVID. Yeah, I mean, so in 2020, as you could probably imagine, when you were trying to get outdoors, have social spacing, and you weren't sure what was or wasn't safe, uh, golf went crazy, you know, up 20 plus percent in terms of play, you know, in, in 20 versus 19. When we got to 2021, everyone said, well, buckle up, we're going back to where it was, you know, in 18 or 19. And the reality of it is we're actually going to be up in 21 versus 20. So we actually are going to see actually more rounds played in 2021 than we saw in 20, even though people have returned to some sort of hybrid. I know that not everyone's back to five days in the office. Mm-hmm. Um, but even with that, you know, we've seen the growth that happened in golf, the return of, 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 of a lot of demographics that returned in 20, not only stayed, but actually played more golf in 21 so far than, um, than, we, than we saw in 22. So that's exciting. The, the bigger piece, Scarlett, that's really exciting about this game is um, – if I was being honest with you, for about 100 years, if you would say, what's the future of the game look like? I would always laugh and go, you don't, you don't, have, to, you don't have to discuss the future of the game. Go look at junior golf. That's the future game. What's it look like? And for about 100 years, it looked exactly like adult golf. It was primarily white. It was primarily men. It was primarily high income. So you could talk about the future of the game changing, but come on, the future of the game is already playing. They just haven't grown up yet. Today, if you look at the future of the game, it's amazingly female. You know, it's... Uh, for, you know, close to 40% female. It's close to 40%, you know, not white. And um, and I think there's two things going on there. One, there's been an incredible, you know, initiatives in the industry to generate an even greater junior audience. And junior, by the way, junior golf is growing faster than any other kind of golf mm. in, the, in the U.S. The other thing is the, is the inventive top golf, drive shack, high-end, you know, uh, miniature golf. It's yes. creating an audience that, quite frankly, we didn't have before. It's younger. It's way more diverse. It's 50% female. It's, it's 45% non-white. Um, it's high income. I mean, I think people get it wrong when they think it's an audience that couldn't transfer over to the game. And about 25% of that whole kind of top golf off-course world has transferred into greengrass golf. So when you think about who's coming into the game, I always, tell, I always tell people the future of the game is pretty easy to figure out. Just tell me who's coming into the funnel. <laughs> and junior golf is certainly looks different than it's looked in 100 years. And because of what's happening with this off-course phenomenon, that whole influence coming into the game looks, feels, and acts different. So it's making the demographics of golf look more like America, not more like past golf. Interesting. Mike, really appreciate your joining us to give us uh, your perspective on the game and, of course, the new uh, sponsorship deal that you've signed with ProMedica, the nonprofit health organization. Really appreciate it. Mike Wan, CEO of USGA. This is a Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast. I'm Scarlett Fu, along with Michael Barr and Mike Lynch. Catch us here each and every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday, where we explore the world of money and sports. And look out for our Thursday pod because We're going to be joined by the two-time Super Bowl winning MVP, the one and only Eli Manning. And be sure to catch us on Twitter. You can find me at Scarlett Foo. And you can find me at Lynchy, WCBB. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports on Bloomberg Radio around the world. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? 
You get Our Way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.